Well, good afternoon, Gresham Bible. It is good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, my name is Nick, and my wife and I and our four kids have been a part of the church for a little over a year now. And some of you we've met, and some of you we haven't, so I hope we get the chance to uh, be introduced to you if we haven't met yet. Hey, uh, have you ever had a situation where what you expected and what you experienced were very different? That your perception or your hopes about a situation turned out to be very different than the reality that you experienced? We had this situation a couple of years ago in our family. Uh, we have a tradition, like perhaps many of you do, that when it's anyone's birthday, they get to choose the birthday dinner, right? Something special for us to make or somewhere to take them out for dinner, which is a big deal when you got a larger family, like we're going out for a birthday dinner. So several years ago, my son Carter, who's now 13, uh, his choice for birthday dinner was to go to the Cheesecake Factory. Now, as a dad, that's a little bit of a dilemma because you're thinking, okay, six meals, six pieces of cheesecake, the dollar signs are like spinning in your head. That's a pretty expensive birthday dinner. So we came up with a compromise and figured out a more affordable dinner option and then headed to the Cheesecake Factory to do the birthday dessert. And, uh, you know, I'm all excited to take Carter. It was his first time, and as, as we went in, the restaurant there at the Clackamas Town Center was just bustling with people, as it often is, just packed and noisy in this vibrant environment. And, and I'm all excited, but I look at Carter, who has this very quizzical, somewhat disappointed look on his face. And after a few minutes, he finally says, he says, Dad, where's the factory? And I was like, what? I, I'm like, we're here. This is it. This is the Cheesecake Factory. We made it. He's like, yeah, but where's the factory? And I started to figure out that in the year prior to going there, we had taken some other family trips. We had been to the Tillamook Cheese Factory, where we had watched them make cheese all the way from cream to being these blocks that were being split. And many of you have been there, you know, the conveyor belts that run them through the wrap. I mean, the whole process. Uh, we had been to Bruce's Candy Kitchen in Cannon Beach and stood at the window and watched as those really cool arms, you know, would just pull the taffy and the guy would take it and put it on a pan and stretch it. So, like we got to watch the whole process. And the, the summer before, we had been down in Florida and had actually gone to Universal Studios. And if you've ever been there, you may have stopped by the Toothsome Chocolate Factory where there are large vats of chocolate and they're making it there in front of you and you can order at the counter. And so when my son heard there was a cheesecake factory, well, what do you think he expected? And he looked around like, Dad, where's the factory? And it was quite a letdown to tell him that, buddy, this is it. They just sell the cheesecake here in the counter. We don't actually get to watch it being made. And his expectations turned out to be really a letdown. The, the, the experience we had was very different than what he expected. And it's one thing when that happens, maybe with being let down over a restaurant or an expectation around food, but it's quite another matter entirely when the expectations might have to do with our faith in Christ or what we believe about God. You see, I, I think to some degree all of us at one time or another have had expectations of what God should be like or what Jesus should do, or what faith would accomplish in our life. And when it didn't turn out that way, it may have become for some of us uh, the probability of disappointment. That maybe we thought if we trusted Jesus and tried to do relationships right the way, we would have a good marriage. But we have found ourselves maybe 
on the other side of a bad marriage or in the middle of a very difficult one or feeling betrayed or unloved or disrespected. And at times we may find ourselves in our prayers to God saying, Lord, this isn't what I expected. I thought if I trusted you and invited you in and tried to do it the right way, I would have a good marriage. Or maybe we thought that that trusting Christ and following his call in our life would lead us into a, a good job or a fulfilling career, but we maybe found ourselves somewhere where we felt stuck unappreciated or in a job we didn't really like at all and we turn to God saying God this how can this be the plan I'm trying to do what you want me to do but this doesn't seem like a good job or a good career or maybe we believe that following Jesus would mean we would have good health that, that he would take care of our physical needs and we'd be able to live a long good life but the diagnosis came or the sickness came or they got ill and we prayed and we believed and they didn't get better And our expectations of what God would do that don't pan out lead us to this place of questioning and wondering, God, where are you at? Why why are things so different than I expected? Or maybe, and I think all of us might fall into this category, we've just found ourselves thinking that following Christ means I'm going to have a good life. Maybe a good retirement. I'm going to have a lot of peace or comfort or joy. And anytime I find myself in a circumstance that is not good, I may find that my expectations of what God would do or how Jesus would help me are not being met. And so what do we do if we find ourselves not getting what we expected from God? That Jesus isn't what we expected he would be. And I'm so glad that we don't have to ask this question alone, but that we can actually turn to the scriptures and find that the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus in his earthly life, had some of the same differing expectations about Jesus that you and I might be facing as well. And I think as we look at these stories tonight, or this afternoon, whichever you prefer, that as we look at them, we're going to get some understanding of what we might do with our unmet expectations when it comes to faith as well. And if you're in the room today and you would say you don't believe in Jesus, or you're honest to say you don't know where you're at with Jesus, I just want to say that I am so glad you are here. Because it is very likely that somewhere in your disillusionment over God or faith or the Bible, there are seeds of unmet expectations, of things you thought church would be like or God would be like or Christians would be like, and it's made it very hard for you to embrace faith in Jesus. And so I'm excited you're here because I hope that as we look at the actual stories of Jesus and his words, that you may have some deeper understanding of who he really is. Because I believe that at the end of the day, when we have a clear understanding of Jesus and his mission, it is compelling for all of us to follow. And so I hope as we turn in God's word to Luke chapter 22, that the life and mission of Jesus, as we're invited into, will be a little more clearer today. So uh, grab a Bible if you brought one, uh, or flip there on your phone. You'll have to go to the Bible app and get off of your March Madness NCAA tournament app. Let's be honest, your bracket is busted and so is mine, so we can set that aside for a while and really give our hearts and minds to what God wants to say in his word. Uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. So one of the things I love about being a part of a series, just before I read these verses, is that we get to have these stories in context. And so if you were here last week and you've been following along in this series, you know the setting of what we're about to read. 
that Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room on the very night that he will later be betrayed and taken into custody and put through a number of trials, ultimately ending up before Pilate, who will wash his hands of the whole affair, give Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified and killed on a cross. We are on the cusp of all those events. Jesus has already gotten down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' dirty, smelly feet. And he's already taken up, as we looked last week and walked through the Lord's Supper, he's already taken the bread and said, this is my body. He's taken the cup and said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the next passage, in light of what we've just been hearing, might strike us as a little bit surprising. This is what happens next in the story of Jesus. And I'm going to read out of the NIV, so if you're in a different translation, I'll trust the Holy Spirit to bridge the gap between the two. Uh, It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of Gentiles lord it over them, but those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, or in other versions, friends of the people. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in each one of these passages, I want to highlight what I think is a surprise about the story. And in in this passage, the surprise to me is pretty evident in light of what we've just talked about, that here is Jesus telling them, this is my body, this is my blood, All along the way, as they've come to Jerusalem, he's been trying to tell his disciples, I am about to be betrayed, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified. And yet it's evident to these disciples, and and in many passages we could look at, that they have not yet caught on to the mission of Jesus. In, In spite of everything he's been saying to them, they are still expecting him to establish a very earthly kingdom, to do something about Rome, who is taken over Jerusalem and has their soldiers all throughout the city, that that Jesus is there to restore Israel to its national prominence. And they have been deciding in, in many ways along the way who will get to have the seats of honor as Jesus is taken into that prominent role. And so here he is just having told them that this is my body, this is my blood, and their next conversation is, who is the greatest? I mean, the surprise of this, Jesus saying, I'm about to die, and the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Which one of us is really going to get the good seat next to Jesus? And I think there's a, a part of Jesus that feels like, guys, you're, you're not catching on here. You see, they're so keyed into the kingdom they think Jesus ought to be establishing that they are in danger of missing the kingdom that he is really ushering into the world. And it's where I think we see their unmet expectation or what we might find as an unmet expectation as well. That we can find ourselves, like the disciples, expecting a conquering earthly king. That he's going to drive out the Romans, he's going to make Israel better. 
that Jesus is here to really reestablish the USA as a, a good, moral, uh, God-honoring country. That Jesus' mission in this world is to restore peace in the Middle East, to get Russia out of the Ukraine, and to make it safe for people to worship God in the various countries around Africa. You know, and while all of those things I think are appropriate to pray for, and I think we're invited to pray for, it's perhaps missing the mark just as Jesus' disciples did. That we're looking for nations to be made right while Jesus is standing among us saying, I'm looking to invite people into an entirely new kingdom altogether. And so, yes, we pray for Jesus to fix the problems in the Ukraine and we pray for Jesus to do something in the USA, but we should also remember that God's mission ultimately is not to fix our country or other countries, but to invite us into a far superior country and to pray that Americans and Ukrainians and Russians would find their way into this eternal kingdom of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, that there is now no longer slave or free. Jew or Gentile, Russian, Ukrainian, or American. He didn't write about those, but we can add the idea. There's no longer male or female, for Christ is all and is in all. That what we're invited into in Christ is far superior to what we're invited to in any country or earthly kingdom. And I, I think in this passage, Jesus is trying to help his disciples see this by talking about the kind of leadership they should expect in the kingdom of God. It's not that there weren't going to be any leaders. It's not that there weren't going to be uh, people sitting on the thrones, you know, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but it was going to be different than what they expected. That it wasn't about moving their way to the top and having seats of authority and power, but instead flipping things upside down and working their way to the bottom, looking to serve looking to give their life away as Jesus himself offered the example to say, for even I am among you as one who serves. And as he said previously to them, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so how about it for us? Do we expect Jesus to come and fix our country? Are we expecting a conquering earthly king? Or can we see the invitation to be a part of an entirely new kingdom? Something much greater, much larger that God is seeking to do among us that was ushered in through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, let's look at the next passage. As Jesus finishes this, he turns immediately to one disciple and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. Well, what, what might we find surprising in this passage? You know, I, I think as I've looked at this one, there's a real surprise here that Jesus has turned to Simon Peter and he's, he's looking to him saying, Simon, there's something about to happen. Satan has actually approached God the Father and has asked his permission to sift you like wheat. 
to, to really shake things up, to separate out the wheat and the chaff. And, and I'm not entirely sure what kind of process Jesus or the disciples would have been envisioning for sifting wheat, but it doesn't sound good or comfortable for the person involved, right? And if Satan is asking for it, it really doesn't sound like something any one of us would want to be a part of. And so what I find surprising is if Jesus is saying that Satan has asked for permission to really rough up your life and disrupt you, what I want Jesus to be praying for is that it doesn't happen, right? Anybody else? Like if Jesus is praying for me in that situation, I want him using his authority saying, God, we pray against the work of Satan in Peter's life. We're not going to let this happen because you're the authority over Simon Peter's life, not Satan, so it's not going to happen. Isn't that the way you would pray? I mean, it's the way I would pray. If I've got Jesus on my side, like I don't want Satan sifting me. (laughs) I want Jesus protecting me. But Satan, but Jesus here instead, in a real surprise, says, I've, I've been praying that, that after it happens, assuming that God allows it to happen, God has already said yes to this request, it's being permitted, and there's a whole sermon there on the theology of that, which we don't have time to get into, but Jesus is saying, I'm praying that afterward, your faith may not fail. That after the trial comes and after you actually don't do so well, because by the way, you're going to deny three times that you even know me, and we're going to get to hear more about that in uh, the next couple of passages, not this week, next week, uh, that, that after that you will be strengthened and that you will be able to turn back and help and strengthen your brothers. You see, I don't know about you, but in this passage, what I expect, and I think the disciples expect, and maybe what all of us expect from Jesus, is we expect escape from our troubles, right? We, we expect him to, to see those things that are coming and to help us before they come to turn in a different direction and not go through the trial, not experience the accident, not go through the loss, not have to go through the difficulty or the lawsuit or the breakup or Whatever it is, it's like, Lord, send me in the good direction. That's what we expect, but what Jesus is offering, what we get is strength to endure. What we expect is escape from our troubles. What we get is strength to endure. You know, I think it's okay if there's a part of us that's like, I don't know if I like that. Right? I mean, wouldn't you rather skip the trial? Wouldn't you rather skip the sickness or whatever it is that's about to happen and, and, and get to give God? I mean, I'll give God all the glory for that too. I'll thank God for that miracle. Why, why at times would he say no to what seems like a good request to avoid the pain or the sickness or the suffering? Because I think that's, if we were God, that's what we would do. But we're reminded in Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet there writes about God speaking in the voice of God saying this, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah is reminding us in this passage that we worship and serve a God whose ways go infinitely beyond our own. And there are times and circumstances in which we are not capable of understanding the ways of God. And and in one sense, we might 
feel disappointed about that. But in another sense, I think it ought to give us great confidence and joy because if our God was small enough for us to understand and explain everything he did, he would not be a God large enough or great enough to hold the universe in his care. He would really be a God that has been made in our own expectations rather than the reality of who he is. His ways are beyond our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts, and that can give us comfort and peace that if he has allowed us to go through a trial or something difficult or have to face that circumstance that we wanted to avoid, if he has allowed us to go through that, that in his infinite wisdom, he's promised us strength to endure. He's promised that he will give you what you need when you need it so that you can endure and continue to hold fast to him and perhaps even through that strengthen others. I think we've probably all seen these two examples if we thought about our own lives and people we know. We know people who have gone through trials, haven't we? And the trials have made them bitter, angry, disappointed, disillusioned with life, angry at God, angry at everything. And while we might feel for them, it's, it's not pretty to watch. And it's difficult to know how to help. But we can probably also think of people in our lives, people we know that we were close enough to watch what they went through and when they faced the trial or the sickness or the cancer or whatever it was, it it elevated their dependence on Christ. They became more faithful. They became more dependent. They became softer. Their heart opened up to what God was doing in their life. And when you were around them, was there not something that was encouraged? something that was inspired, you'd walk away being like, well, wait a minute, I, I came here to be an encouragement to them because they're sick, but man, I'm the one leaving encouraged because of how faith-filled they are. Right? Can't you think of both examples that where God did not spare someone from the trial, that when they instead found strength to endure, it made an incredible difference. They were able to glorify God and strengthen others through their trial, just as Jesus was praying for Peter. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago where this hits personally for me, I, I got one of those texts from my mom that you don't ever want to get. We think dad has cancer. He had taken an at-home test that was known to be 80% accurate and had been received a positive diagnosis. So she was texting us to let me and my siblings know that he was going in for the official test in about a week. And so we began to pray, and I began to ask others to pray. And, and as we did, in light of this passage and what I've been thinking through in my own life, uh, there was these two sides. Of, I, want to just, I want to pray for healing. I want to pray for deliverance. I want to pray that it's a clean bill of health. But I would remember these words, and uh, our men's Bible study is going through First Peter, as, as perhaps many of you are. And man, if there's not a book that says, hey, face it, you're going to suffer. <laughs> and as you go through suffering and trials, be sure of these things. And so in, in light of that, I found myself praying for healing and praying that if it was cancer, that mom and dad would know how to face it and he'd give them strength to do it together. Praying for wisdom that my siblings and I would know how to support them as none of us live close by. Praying that they would be able to walk through this trial and that God's will would be done and God would be glorified through his life. I was praying for both, which somehow I think in our faith maybe feels like well, you can't really do that. Like, you got to pray for one or the other. You either got to believe, you got to have faith to be healed, or you pray to endure. And like, you know, I, there was something for me in these last few weeks 
that was a beautiful tension to pray for healing and pray for strength to endure. And I hope that as you face challenging situations, rather than allowing it to take you to a place of wondering, where is God? Why didn't he care enough to heal? Why isn't he fixing it the way I expected? that instead we could also move into that tension of God. I believe that if you're allowing me to face this trial, you will give me strength to endure. And by the way, my dad's cancer screening came back completely clear and he's healthy and praise God because that felt like an answer to that side of the prayer. So that's the rest of the story there. I know in not every story is that the case though. So if you did not get that answer to prayer, I pray that you're strengthened to endure. So Jesus has uh, encouraged Simon in this way, and let's go back to the text to get the third story. Uh, as he goes on, and, and still the same setting, these are the words he says next to the disciples. It says, Then Jesus asked them, When I send you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And then the disciples said, Lord, we here, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So what in this passage do we find surprising? I don't know about you, but what I find surprising is that Jesus seems to tell them, if you don't have a sword, go buy one. And then the disciples look around and realize, Jesus, we got two swords. And he's like, yeah, that's enough. Like, wait, what? That's not enough, right? There's 12 of them. That's not even enough swords for the 12 of them, let alone to do anything against Rome and all of their military might. I mean, can you imagine this superhero movie where there are six guys who are like, throw me the sword, quick, toss it here. I need the sword over this way. And like, it's not enough. But that's really the indication that what Jesus is speaking to them here is far more than about actually buying a sword. That there's more to this passage than what, again, our disciples, unfortunately, have understood. You see, Jesus is referencing back to a time when he sent them out two by two to preach the gospel, to talk about the coming kingdom of God, and to announce that Jesus was coming. And he told them not to take the purse, the bag, or the sandals because they would go to these places and they would stay at a home and they would stay there as long as they were in that city until they went to the next one. And that if any city didn't welcome them, just you know, brush the dust off your sandals and move on to the next one. And he's asking them, were you lacking anything? They're like, well, no, nothing. The implication being that everywhere they went, there was receptivity to the gospel. Because at that time, Jesus, he was, he was the happening thing. Like people had heard about his miracles, they'd heard that he could make the blind see and the lame walk, perhaps even uh, the, making the dead rise. Like there were rumors just flying around Israel like this Jesus and maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's a prophet, I mean all the words. And so I, I expect that when they showed up in a town, like we're disciples of Jesus, we know him, we'd like to tell you about what's happening. People are like, yes, yes, come in and they're feeding them and taking care of their food and clothes and all their needs that that's what he's referring to, this time when they lacked for nothing because it was pretty popular to be with Jesus. But what he's indicating is that all of that is about to change. That the time that has been prophesied about the Messiah all the way back in the book of Isaiah was about to happen. 
You see, when Jesus quotes these words as saying it's written, he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 is the entire chapter about this suffering servant that would come on behalf of the people, but everyone would misunderstand his mission, and he would be mocked and hated and despised, and everyone would think that this suffering servant was dying for his own sins, yet the truth was God was laying on him the sins of all of us. You see, that's what Jesus is quoting from. And I think what he's telling his disciples, he's saying, hey guys, this, this time where I'm going to give my life away, it's come and it's about to radically change everything. This mission has been popular. People have wanted to be around me, but it's about to flip over and no one's going to want anything to do with me. I'm going to be an outcast and you're going to be labeled as one of mine. And so I think he's telling them, get yourselves ready because things are about to change. You've enjoyed the favor of the people. Now we're going to be on the run. But it's what really leads me into this third expectation that I think the third unmet expectation that maybe the disciples had and that we can have as well is that we expect a life of comfort. We expect that following Jesus means a life of comfort, that good things are going to happen to us, that we're going to be on the ends, we're going to be on the popular side, the winning side, the side that at the end sits on the thrones, and instead what we get is we are invited into a mission. We're being given a mission to join. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm inviting you to be a part of something, and it's, it's not always going to be easy. You're not always going to have the favor of the people. You're not going to be welcomed into every home, everywhere you go but it's my mission. It's this kingdom that I'm building and you're being invited to be a part of it, so ready yourself. And while we at this juncture in their lives might look with a little bit of um, maybe frustration or disappointment on the disciples, like, man, how could they not get it? History will tell us that they got it. That these disciples who in Jesus' ministry had gone out and preached the gospel and gotten to stay in lots of homes and being taken care of, they would go to the ends of the Roman Empire preaching the gospel and most all but perhaps one of them would die for preaching this gospel. They realized it wasn't about their comfort. It wasn't about having an easy life. They saw that it was a mission. They were being invited to join, which was far better than just living in comfort and enjoying the favor of the people. You know, I mentioned that our men's Bible study is going through First Peter, and you can't get very far through that book without realizing this very idea, that Jesus' life and salvation wasn't to make it easy for you. In fact, there was going to be suffering. First Peter says, you know, don't be surprised at these suffering and tribulation trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't you know that your brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing the same kind of thing? Like, like when you enter into this, the good news is you actually get to share in his glory and in God's coming kingdom, it's a work among you. And then in 1 Peter 4, Peter writes this, he says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For any of us that grew up in a Western country or in America, we maybe need to hear that again. You must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. And you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. 
Friends, you and I have been invited into a mission with Christ. And as we follow him, it may not always lead to our comfort, but it will lead to his kingdom, which is better by far as we experience what he intended for each and every one of us. All right, let's look at the last passage here in these series of stories. It's right after this as Jesus tells them, be ready that they leave the upper room and they make their way to the Mount of Olives. It says this in verse 39. So Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And by the way, in the very next passage, Judas and an army of Roman soldiers shows up there to make his arrest. So we're on the very doorstep of that taking place. Well, what do we find surprising about this passage? I think what we find surprising here may be the most evident one, that we have Jesus who has come from God and is on mission for God and from the very beginning of his earthly ministry has been alluding to this moment and looking forward to it and trying to convince his disciples it was coming, even though they somehow never seemed to really get the idea that now that he's on the doorstep of that moment, the surprise is he's really not all that eager to do it. Which ought to surprise us a little bit. You know, sometimes we have to try to put the Bible down and try to pretend we'd never read it or we don't know how the story goes. And imagine that if we were writing this story, if, if we knew everything we knew about Jesus up to this point, how do you think this moment would have gone? So I think if we're honest, what we would see is that Jesus is just, he's, he's ready to go. He's like, Lord, this is the moment. Let's go do it. This is why I came. I'm glad it's finally here. I mean, it's, it's what he's been talking about for three years now. But now that he's in that moment, he actually kneels and prays and said, God, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? And it's not like just kind of a half-hearted prayer, like, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling great about maybe being crucified, so maybe I'll ask God. No, like, He's in such anguish that an angel of the Lord has actually come just to comfort him. It says he's, he's in such agony and sweating in such a way, it's like drops of blood are falling off of him. I, I don't know about you, I've, I've prayed some earnest prayers, but none that made me sweat profusely. I, I don't know that kind of anguish in prayer, but this is where Jesus the Savior is at. And I think it actually, actually gives us a compelling picture into the Savior that we follow. You see, we, we may expect an emotionally disengaged deity, but what we get is a compassionate Savior. And if you don't really like the emotionally disengaged deity part, that's okay, neither did I, but it was the best way I could think of to describe what I think we would expect here. That we would expect a, a Jesus who's above the emotion of the moment that doesn't really feel weakness or pain or difficult, like like he's so divine, it's just those things are beneath him. 
But that's not what we get. We don't get an emotionally disengaged God. We get someone who was fully God, yes, but also fully human. And was in the garden, maybe perhaps like you and I would be faced with our own death, saying, God, this scares me quite a lot. And I don't really want the pain and what I'm going to have to go through, and I know I'm going to be whipped and beaten and abandoned, and none of that's going to feel good. And Lord, if I'm honest, I don't really want to do it. And I think for you and I, that's actually incredibly encouraging that our Lord, when faced with his dark moment, wrestled, had emotion, felt things, was going back and forth, could see the good and the bad, wasn't sure what to do because isn't that the way you and I are in prayer all the time? Like, Lord, I know your will, but here's what I really want to do. God, I know this is what you've said. It's what I feel is the right thing, but man, my heart's not in it. I don't feel good today. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. I don't hardly even want to love my kids like myself today, let alone my neighbors. Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's hard. And we don't come to a God that's sitting there going, well, toughen up, son. You got to go do it. Right? Is that our image of God? I really think we come to a compassionate Savior who says, I I know. I know that feeling. I know that emotion. I know that uncertainty. I know that doubt. I know that weakness. I know that fear. I know, and I'm with you. The author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 4. He said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. And so this is his conclusion. Because we have a compassionate Savior, the author of Hebrews' conclusion was to say this, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That we may find mercy and grace to help us in our Garden of Gethsemane moment when we know the Lord's will, but we really don't want to do it and we sure need his help. We can go there with confidence knowing we're not judged or condemned for that that division in our own heart. We're welcomed by a Savior who says, I've been there. I know what that feels like and I'm with you. See, in all of these passages, we're given a a picture of what Jesus is really like. And it's really put in conjunction with maybe the kind of Savior we'd like to have. We'd like someone that would fix our nation's problems and spare us from the trials and give us a comfortable life and lead us into a place where we just, he's got a plan, we just follow him, we don't have to worry about it. Like, maybe that's the kind of God we'd like. But we're given something much, much better. And I think in these stories, what I want to invite us into is this, this ideal of Jesus is lifting up for us who he really is. You know, as I, I think about us tonight, for many of us and perhaps every one of us in the room, the greatest danger that we face in our faith is not apostasy. It's not just rejecting Christ, turning away from him. I don't believe in that anymore. I, I doubt that's a serious danger for many of us. But what is a danger would be in living for a different version of Jesus than actually exists and becoming disillusioned with our own version of this Jesus because our version of Jesus not being the real one will never satisfy or lead us deeper into God's kingdom. The danger is that we would live for a Jesus that isn't even the real Jesus because we're more concerned about our comfort or our troubles and being spared from them and what we think he ought to do, that we miss the invitation of who he really is. 
So my question for us tonight is, are we following Jesus as he actually is or the version of Jesus that we like best? Are we following Jesus as he actually is or the version of Jesus that we like best? Because I think if we're honest, Jesus is different than we expect. But that's a good thing. You know, uh, there was an author several hundred years ago who wrote these words. He said, In the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. I found three names associated with that quote. First, there was Voltaire, Henry Rousseau, and even Mark Twain. And a good rule of thumb, if you find a quote attributed to a lot of people, just pick the oldest person. Because the likelihood is that the other ones just translated what he already said. So I, I love this quote because I think it speaks to what we try to do today. That we have a version of God in mind and at the end of the day, he looks an awfully lot like us. He looks an awfully lot like what we would choose to do and we would like to put on him that image of what we think should be done and make him in our own image. And friends, that's not faith. That's actually fear-driven. It's a response to the God we think will help us most rather than entering into a faith where we don't always know what he's going to do, but we know he's with us and we know he's good. You know, we, we want the world to work for us, and so we want a God who will give us that, which is making God in our own image. But where we find ourselves doing this, we need to repent, which means to change direction and follow him because he invites us into this new kingdom with him. So two questions as I wrap up tonight. I want you to think about this. Is there an expectation, an unmet expectation that you have about Jesus or faith that you need to lay down? Maybe it's one of the ones that we spoke about tonight or one that's come to mind for you. What unmet expectation about Jesus or faith do you need to lay down? And secondly, how could you follow Jesus as he actually is more closely this week? How could you follow him as he actually is more closely this week? You know, back to our family at the Cheesecake Factory, that night, if we'd have been disillusioned by the fact that it wasn't an actual factory and left, because we could have done that, right? We could have been like, there's no factory here, we're out of here, gone somewhere else. We could have done that, but we would have missed the best part, in my opinion. I know not everyone would agree, but in my opinion, we would have missed the best part, the cheesecake. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the name, it's about the cheesecake. And if we let our unmet expectations disillusion us and left, we could have missed out on what it was all about. And friends, for you and I, the same challenge exists. That if we become disillusioned with Christ and our unmet expectations, what we think he ought to do, we can actually miss the best part. That Jesus is an actual being, an actual person who really right now exists and knows you in a personal way better than anyone does and he is present in this room as real as you and I sitting here together. And in that reality, that very Jesus gave his life as the bread, gave his body as the blood that we might be set free, not only of our sin, 
but set free from a life wrapped around our own comfort and safety so that we might join him in his mission of bringing this world into the new kingdom of God that is better and more lasting by far. Let's pray, and as I do, we're going to be led into communion and get to celebrate the body and the blood of Christ tonight. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge that every single one of us comes to you through a grid of our understanding, our way of seeing the world, our expectations, what we think you ought to do. And in humility, we want to just lay that before you. And God, we say, help us to recognize where we've done that, where we're maybe not even seeing it. We have so shaped you in our own image that we're missing out on what you've truly invited us into. So God, I pray that that the life of Jesus would speak to us more powerfully, that the truth of who he is and what we've been invited into would make its home in our hearts and that this crystal clear picture of who Jesus really is would guide and compel us each and every day. God, shape us to be people that long to be a part of your kingdom, both now and in all eternity. And Lord, may we be willing to lay down or sacrifice or let go of whatever we need to. Whatever we need to. So we can follow wholeheartedly after you as you really are. We pray this together in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.